Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Turned Out a Punk. This is our Architects of Self-Destruction, the Oral History of Leftover Crack special. We're returning to the show is my friend and your friend too, Brad Logan, uh, recently an ex-member actually of Leftover Crack, which we will talk about much more in the episode. And also, uh, finally, someone I get to talk to, having been a huge fan of the stuff he does over there at punknews.org, John Gentile is here as well. These two have put together an incredible read. This is something that, as I said last week, even if you're not necessarily even a fan of music, period, you need to read because it is a, a captivating story of the intertwining lives of individuals that seemingly are at odds at different points very very severely but anyway once again you will hear about this more in this episode but you got to get this book uh it is out now wherever you get your books and spoiler alert little old me writes an intro uh go back and listen to brad logan's first appearance on the show he is a great dude i'm one of my favorite people and you know his first episode reflects that and stuff like that all right that is it uh sit back relax and enjoy the Architects of Self-Destruction Special. John, Brad, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Damien. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Damien, I'm thrilled to be here, man. After listening to this show for so long, I'm mega psyched to be on the show. Well, I read punknews.org every day of my life Ooh. and have for years and years and years, so... As a mutual consumer of your content, I'm very happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, and also this book, I got to say, like, you know, uh, when I first got the book, I'm like, well, there's two ways you do a book like this. Like you, you tell one side of the story, which could be really glossy and, and present the band in a very, uh, controlled way, or you tell the truth and w reading this book, you guys really told the truth. Yeah. Yeah. We, we talked about that and, and, you know, I think to, uh, to present it in any other way, you know, I mean, people would just see right through that, you know, anybody that knows the band, you know, um, knows, uh, the history as well, whether, <laughs> whether they wanted to or not, you know, uh, their, the reputation of the band preceded itself. Um, I think. And, and so, you know, um, you know, we had to put it all out there. And, uh, um, I think that, um, you know, the, the problem was, you know, not what to put out there, but what it was just like whittling it down because there was just so much, you know, um, and, and to whittle it down to, you know, 300 pages or whatever we were allotted was, uh, was the challenge. Right. And still present something that, that was, uh, you know, could tell the story. Right. You know, mm -hmm. <clears throat> Well, I don't like, know if it did if it did that or not. I like I like you know uh, going in. I did not know you know obviously leftover crack is one of the bands that I think looms the largest. And actually, John, like you know, as someone that was probably familiar with them for years before this kind of came to be, like where did you first come to them, and like what were your kind of associations with them? Because they're a band that like no matter what you think of the music, they're a band that I think just you know, outside of the musical impact just has had such a cultural impact on punk, like few bands have. 
Well, I came to them like almost everybody did outside of the New York scene is I heard them on Give Them the Boot 2. And it, I, I heard Crack Rock Steady, which is on Give No, Infested, which is on uh, Give Them the Boot. I think, yeah, Infested is on Give Them the Boot 2. I think that's on Volume then, 1, but that's the Choking Victim one, right? Right. Yeah, okay, so if Infested is on Give Them the Boot. Because there's one, it, Give Them the Boot 2, I think, has Choking Victim Leftover, Crack yeah. F minus. Yeah. And, and so, so I, that's either Infested or maybe that's Crack Rock. Maybe that's Crack Rock Steady. Anyways, I heard Crack Rock Steady. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like the greatest thing I ever heard. And then when I was at Penn State, I went to Mike's Music at Penn State. And bought leftover crack because I thought it was choking victim, and I got it, and I was bummed out. I'm like, this isn't the band, but I, little did I know at the same time, this is before the internet was like big and popular, or everybody had the internet, and it's like basically the same band. So after that, I just kept listening to it, and at the time, it was the craziest thing I had ever heard, like a lot of people, and that's how I came to the band. Uh, with regards to, I, I guess, my expectations of them, I had interviewed Sturgeon a few times before uh, the whole book. I interviewed Brad a few times before the book. And Brad called me up and asked me if I wanted to work on the book with him, and I did. And I would say my biggest surprise, well, two two big surprises. You know, they have songs about heroin and crack, and I thought that was like I thought maybe they smoked weed, and that was all like a joke, and it was not a joke <laughs> at, at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the other thing was is and this, the book goes into this is like at the core you think okay, well this band's been touring for 15, 20 years, they they know what they're doing, you know the chaos that's kind of part of the image, you know. But at the core, it's a band. I really did not realize the conflict, the chaos, and the disorder that the band is and still has. And leftover, like what the point being is, what you see on stage really is leftover crack. It's not an act, and it's not a play. Like that's the real thing. Yeah. Unlike many other bands, yeah. honestly. Yeah, like I, uh, you know, I finally got to. <clears throat> I, we must have played before together over the years, but I really got to hang out when knowing Brad. I guess the first time was at that Bouncing Souls anniversary show a couple years ago and it, it like yeah it was so it was so it was a wild ass night and to think that that's just like one of countless nights i can't imagine how draining that would be night in and night out brad like that's that's the thing that really hit me is like to try and be the steady hand on the wheel in any sense of it like it's one thing to just go with the chaos but to try and like retain that must have just <laughs> been a nightmare yeah yeah it was maddening you know, <laughs> right. I guess that's the, the, the thing, right? It's like, I, I mean, I've seen bands that, that have had meltdowns on stage and I've seen many a meltdown in, in you know, chaotic, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, unraveling. But I guess the thing that, uh, that um, uh, is astonishing to me is that we continued on, you know, t- 22 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. 22 year long meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you can't, what is wrong with us? Well, that's the thing, right? Like you can't think of a band that went on consistently in that much chaos. Like the punk is there's so many storied chaotic bands, you know, it's like a genre that's built on these legends of these bands, but they're brief periods, right? Like Gigi Allen had like what, two or three, three year spans, you know, when right. he's really active, you know, or like, right. you yeah. know, the, the mentors or, or even like, even like, you know, not like left for dead or even like, you know, chaotic crazy punk band germs, you know, like it's so yeah. short, but to yeah. do that year in and year out, it's just, it's, it, well, first of all, it's commendable because, you know, I, it's hard enough to keep a band that's somewhat functional going for any amount of time, let alone a band where it's, every night it could completely fall apart. Like John's saying, it's not an act. 
I mean, I, I think that, that, you know, um, you know, really the, the, the glue was, we all believed in, in, you know, in what we were doing and, and we believed in the music and, and, you know, we believed we were fighting the good fight, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, for a lot of years, uh, you know, it seemed like, you know, nobody else did, but we did. And, and that's what, you know, kept us going. Right. And, and, uh, um, you know, I don't, I'm not aware of any sort of cultural impact really, you know, but we all liked what we were doing and, and, uh, and the way that we were doing it. And, and so, you know, we're all dysfunctional in our own ways, you know what I mean? And, and maybe nobody else would have us right. And in their bands, you know, so we were, uh, thrown together you know and and um uh and and made the best of it you know and um i I mean i was certainly no stranger to you know growing up in that you know in the punk scene in that type of environment that was just you know taking that you know that parking lot on the road really you know um you know the parking lot scenes of, of craziness you know and and drunken insanity um you know, behind the venue or whatever, <laughs> it's just loading that into a van and fucking taking it on the road. So it wasn't like anything unusual to me, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think to any of us, you know, so that's my take at least, but. Well, I, no, I was just going to say, cause like, I think there comes a time where most bands you hit a point and you're like, okay, what are we going to do? Like, what is the end game of this band outside of the creative side of things? But I mean, like in terms of like, how we're going to function are we going to be like pros at it and become like a pro core band or are we going to you know are we going to stay a diy band but like i think you know you guys have probably been much more comfortable to just stay a diy band but it was huge out of the gate like i remember the first like you're saying john like that first song on the first give them the boot comp that came out and people were like who's this and then it just you know gravitated from one band to the other like it became like a like, you know, and I, I know you're like kind of in it, so you don't really see the cultural impact, but like going around and seeing the shirts and seeing the patches and just seeing, you know, meeting people, obviously, that have been affected by this band. Like, you know, as I say, there's few bands that have kind of had that impact, certainly since the first few waves of punk rock, like in the more recent time. Like, I don't know, who would you say, like, John, who would you say is up there? Like, I, I'm really racking my brain thinking like in the last few, like last couple decades. Who would I say is up there with the cultural influence of Leftover Crack and Choking Victim? In, in punk rock specifically, yeah. Well, I, what, I, what I will say is I was at Punk Rock Bowling where Leftover Crack had an, an amazing performance. It was Brad Sturgeon, uh, Sandra of World Inferno, Al of Cop Out, uh, Donnie Morse on drums, and Eve Minor on keyboards, and it was amazing. It, was, it, really, it really was an amazing set. Um, and actually, I, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm going off on a tangent, but... This just speaks, I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm going to say it way. This speaks to the talent of Sturgeon and Brad and the whole band. It's quite sadly, Alec passed away, I guess about six months ago or so now. They did a song called You Can't Go Home, which is kind of one of their sadder songs. And, and it, you know, is a metaphor for a lot of things, and particularly the lives of some of the members in the band. And while they were playing their set, the sun was setting, and behind them was a giant screen that had different pictures of Alec. And it really was a magical sad but magical and powerful moment that the sun set while they were paying tribute to alec it was it was like a an amazing thing so that's the skill of the band both both emotionally some songs are funny some songs are sad some songs are chaotic sonically diverse this is why they've had such an amazing impact because they are true artists 
And the point being is at Punk Rock Bowling, I was I was really surprised. Usually at Punk Rock Bowling, you see the Ramon shirts are the most common shirts or misfit shirts are the most common. For some reason, this Punk Rock Bowling, the most common shirt by far was leftover crack and choking mm -hmm. victim. Mm -hmm. So the question is, who's had as much of a cultural impact? I don't know. Refuse maybe. But, you know, I mean, I, I think I think refuse might be intellectually stimulating. But I think leftover crack and choking victim moves the soul, even if you're an atheist, if you will. And that, you know, so I don't know, refused, you know, how's that for an answer? Yeah, I agree. And that's like, you know, they're a good, a good one too. And, and, and fucked up, Damien. <laughs> fucked up and amazing. <laughs> I was thinking <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. I, fucked, up <laughs> fucked up did move the needle. And I will say, and I don't know if Damien likes getting complimented or not on the podcast, but listeners, if you haven't heard Year of the Horse yet, you have got to hear Year of the Horse. It blew my mind. Well, the Zodiacs are always my favorites. I love you're the pig. I love you're the dragon. I think horse might be my new favorite one. Anyways, I'm sorry, Damien. Thank you. No, and I and, and if we did have an impact, like nowhere near what leftover crack has, because like, like you're saying, like refused has had an impact, and there's definitely like, you know, sonic changes that have happened in their wake. But in terms of like you're saying, like seeing kids, like young people, and it's I think the thing is people tend to underestimate leftover crack, and I think I'm among these people where you're like, oh yeah, they're like a ska punk band. But then when you listen to them, it's like, now they're kind of just like a punk band, but there's also just like, you're saying there's tons of emotion in there and there's just tons of like realness. Like they're, you know, like, I guess like the closest, there's just so few bands that are kind of like that honest about personal experience and also living that close to the edge, you know? Like, I think that's the other thing. It's like, it's one thing for a band to like, you know, you're saying pull it together on stage. It's another thing to kind of like being like, yeah, but here's, here's what's really going on. And it, it sucks at times <laughs> it's pretty ugly yeah <laughs> I, I mean that that you know the thing is is you know early on i think you know that the, the kids always uh you know believed in it and and knew what was up and uh you know i don't think that um you know uh, it, as far as uh it, you know uh the press or or um, promoters or, uh, you know, even, uh, record labels outside of, uh, you know, Hellcat and, you know, Tim Armstrong knew what was up, but, um, you know, the band never really had any sort of, uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm just getting text blown up. Um, you know, never really had any sort of, uh, um, uh, you know, push anywhere, but, but you know, the, the kids knew man. And, and, and the shows would be, you know, I'm sorry, I hate saying the kids, but the kids knew, mm. you know, and the kids would show up and, and, and lose their shit, you know, and, and, and it became like, and we were very connected to our audience. It wasn't like, you know, we weren't out there with them, you know, um, after the shows and before the shows and, you know, um, uh, so, you know, there was that connection and, and that kind of, um was success to us i mean i guess we've tried to get it together um and and you know uh become sort of a you know professional polished you know touring machine but you know we we're much better at snatching defeat from the jaws of victory <laughs> it just you know never seemed to work out the, the bands that make history normally do, right? Like, you know, you watch that Replacements documentary or read anything about the Replacements. It's like, they're the same sort of way and granted doing something completely different, but I guess it's the, the same sort of deal. And that's like something that comes off in the book. It's like these labels want the band. And then once they get the band, 
it's like oh my They're god like, oh this my is god too real like yeah <laughs> what the hell are we gonna do with this thing oh <laughs> uh, we didn't know it was gonna be this shit <laughs> yeah like yeah i i think the yeah. best thing is making cello by afra question his commitment to freedom of speech you know like or just like <laughs> really like uh what am i like the guy that went to war with tipper gore for artists to be allowed to do this is then oh faced with the reality of what this is that he's that he's fought for I, I like that's what i think there's so many moments in the book where it's like these people in punk are like yeah i want punk and like punk is like the truth you know you want the truth you can't handle the truth you want the punk it's like when you really get it, it's like you can't handle the punk uh. Yeah. And, and I, you know, none of that was, none of it was on purpose. You know, I, I mean, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, none of it was by design. It just, you know, I, I don't think, you know, I think I can speak for the other guys when I say none of us expected, you know, uh, anything, you know, maybe, you know, Sturgeon knew he had a batch of good songs and, and he's a great songwriter, but other than that, you know, um, uh, you know, I don't think any of us thought it would ever get out of, you know, the Lower East Side, but mm -hmm. um, so was there anything that jumped out at you in the book that that you particularly uh, in, enjoyed? I, I love <clears throat> I love those interludes that you guys threw in there. Yeah. I thought those really served to kind of break up and contextualize some of the craziness that was going on. And the stuff about C Squad, obviously, from a historical point of view, I found that really fascinating. Obviously, the stuff about addiction and mental health, I think it's really important. And I think it's important to have in the book, too, because, like, I think that, like, you know, no one wants to be a role model in punk rock, but, like, you wind up becoming, or you wind up being cast as role models a lot of time because there are so many young people involved. And I think there's a jeopardy when you hear the song sometimes or you look at the image to glamorize it even if it's not necessarily glamorizing it itself so to have the book really kind of lay it all to bear and be like well here's what's actually going on behind the scenes i think it's important to then have like stuff about addiction stuff about mental health because those are really key factors that are are driving this you know insanity is a horrible thing to kind of label this because it's it's such a a, a word that's such so negative but like it is a mental health thing that's kind of at play here with addiction right and so yeah mental health is kind of a constant theme throughout the book yeah yeah go on john i'm sorry well, i i will say uh damien you mentioned addiction one thing that i thought was very interesting with both sturgeon and brad is they both were it was both it was important to both of them that the message isn't drugs are cool drugs mm -hmm. are fun they, it was important that that wasn't the message and so we we had to, but we also wanted to be very honest with drug use and not, you know, drugs are bad and no one should ever use, like, if, if that's the message, the message isn't going to work, you know? So we had to handle drugs in a realistic and well, basically in a realistic way and be pretty much totally on the level about drug usage in, you know, in general. Um, yeah, I, 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 with regards to mental health, I will say it is interesting that in punk rock, we have a lot of back, in, you know, back in the old school, 70s, 80s, I'm going insane, you know, I, I, you know, I'm losing my mind, all those songs. Now, punk rock, the approach to mental health is, is gentler, you know, we, we have a lot of songs about mental health and healing and stuff. But I will say where punk rock could, and, and we try to address this in the book, too where punk rock is still kind of growing is, okay, it's nice to say that mental health is important, but 
be you know severe mental health issues isn't i'm i don't want to go out or i just, I just want to stay at home like sometimes people behaving weirdly and erratically and scarily that's mental health mm-hmm. and so we kind of really wanted to underscore that as well and i think that's where contemporary punk still needs to grow in that mental health issues isn't just you know being a uh, a loner or you know being having having anxiety to go outside sometimes it's people behaving very erratically and scarily and that's something that is equally valid to be addressed and treated, if you will. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been talking to a lot of people recently that have, you know, issues with, you know, very violent pasts and just how many are now at the point in their life where they're realizing that that was a direct result of trauma they had suffered. And it was them trying to gain some sort of control over the sadness they were feeling in their life. And I think, you know, that's like you're saying, like the understanding of mental health in general in society is just hitting this point where I think we're beginning to to kind of get it i guess you know and like it, it really feels like in the book like reading it like how much of this is kind of underscored by mental health issues you know and having that section you know about mental health i thought was really important i don't think it's oh go on sorry oh I was, what 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 uh, I, i'm not trying to uh, monopolize you but what's also interesting is so many punk rockers are mental health professionals mm-hmm. both members of witch hunt uh, Denise of Fistolo Records, Alice of Leftover Crack, and an Evil Out. A, a lot of punk rockers are drawn drawn to, especially youth mental health issues, which is, I guess, makes sense. But I, I didn't never really thought of it beforehand. You know, Dan Yemen uh, of uh, Pain and Black, psychiatrist or a therapist, one of the two. Yeah, no, there's, there, I think, uh, um, um, I'm trying to remember who was on the show talking about it, but someone had a quote. Nicole Panter, former manager of the manager of the Germans, talked about. Punk rock is just people with trauma inflicting trauma on themselves and people around them who in turn yeah. will inflict trauma on people around them. And it's just, it really does feel like we're drawn to this thing because we don't necessarily fit in with what's happening around us. But part of the reason we're drawn to it is because we're all, you know, I guess looking for something that, you know, we're lacking. And a lot of times for myself, you know, it's mental health stuff. I think that really drove me to this. I also found it fascinating in the book, when you look at leftover crack, like you really see two different approaches to dealing with issues of addiction where, you know, obviously Brad, this is something you've struggled with and this is something that you've, you've gained control of in your life. And then much more of a harm reduction kind of approach with Sturgeon. I just think it's, it, once again, like it's, it's a very challenging thing to see bands where it's all one way or the other, but to see a band that's able to kind of maintain that with two, kind of diametrically opposed philosophies, you know, in the band, it, it's, you know, once again, completely staggering to see. <laughs> staggering is <laughs> one way to describe it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, you know, um, you know, I love the way Nicole Panter, uh, you know, paints that, that picture in, in her interview of, you know, uh, you know, why some of us, you know, are drawn to, you know, um, you know, to the punk scene or, or why we were initially in, in, you know, um, I mean, it was filled with, for me, it was just filled with, you know, uh, crazy people. And, and, uh, you know, um, it was very attractive. I mean, I didn't feel, I, I, you know, and at the same time, I didn't feel so crazy because, you know, some of the characters, um, in the places I was hanging out were just so over the top, you know, and, and it was, it was easy to not, um, to think that I was okay. You know, it's like, well, God, look how, you know, insane these people are. They're just insane. 
clearly I have my shit under control, you know, and, and, uh, but, you know, as I got older, I mean, that, that, you know, (laughs) clearly wasn't the case and I, I had to deal with it accordingly, but yeah, I mean, you know, mental health, man, isn't, isn't a, you know, it's one thing to sing about that stuff. It's another thing to be on the other end from it and to be suffering those hurdles and those roadblocks and, and, you know, um, you know, it can be very painful and can be very ugly. And, and I think that, you know, when we decided to put those chapters in, particularly the mental health one and, you know, and the squad or rot one, I mean, you know, we wanted to put some context, you know, um, around the band. I mean, you know, a band is, is uh, you know, I think any band is just, you know, it's a sum of its parts and, and the environment had as much to do, the environment we came from, you know, separately and collectively had as much to do with the music turning out the way it did as, you know, the, the people in the band. Right. And, and so, um, you know, that, that, that picture of the Lower East Side in the, you know, late eighties and, and, you know, the early nineties and, and, uh, you know, the struggle is real with, with, uh, um, you know, drug addiction and, 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 uh, you know, mental health, health issues. And, and then also that, you know, uh, um, I wanted to put in there, you know, the epitaph era and what it was like around then in that period, you know, in the, in the, uh, the mid nineties and late nineties, um, which was just sort of such a different landscape, you know, I mean, I don't know if there is a landscape now, you know, it's just, you know, anything goes and, um, you know, it's all in, in, you know, the, the ether, but, um, you know, those were interesting times and, and, uh, it, it really helped to shape, uh, the band as well, you know, um, even if they were pushing, you know, against it. Um, but does any of that make sense? Yeah, definitely. No, I, I think, I think that's the, I think that's the thing about the band is that there's just so many things that you can kind of like view the world through the band as a prism almost like looking at like Giuliani's New York and the rise of Giuliani's New yeah. York, which of course accelerates with September 11th. Um, and sort of like his consolidation of sort of like municipal power, but just how much that city changed and how leftover crack is kind of the story of like the last New York band, but also like it, you know, you think about that meet me in the bathroom scene and the rise of sort of that early two thousands, like New York drug indie culture. It's interesting to look at leftover crack, obviously not fitting in with bands like, you know, Interpol and the strokes and things like that sonically, but like just being part of that same sort of wave uh, that was coming out of New York at that time of venues and things like that all, all around that time. Like, yeah. Or then the epiphat era, which of course I'm obsessed with talking about, you know, and I think that is such a, uh, you know, they were like a band that emerged towards the tail end of that, but was just completely different than what California was offering at that time in terms of bands like this, you know, like it was just night and day, the, the vibe. I'm not a New Yorker. I mean, I didn't grow up in New York City. I, I, I lived there for a time, but, you know, I grew up in, in Southern California. But, um, you know, I, I was always attracted to New York City, you know, all my life. And and uh, and, and I knew um, how important also, um, you know, that setting was to the band and, and you know, where they came from. And, and, you know, when I first went out, you know, I caught the tail end of it, you know, um, coming through town with, with bands. And and then when I met those guys and, and, you know, hanging out with them and, you know, staying with them and, you know, the places they lived, um, you know, so, uh, um, I, I, you know, 
we felt it would be important to to have that in there as well because uh um uh you know it it was every bit as important um you know to the music as as uh again as the you know the personalities of, of the people in the band and we also wanted to give voice to you know initially in the in the squat chapter i didn't want to have any band members in there you know we wanted to give voice to the people that lived it you know at the time and and uh, that were people in our lives and you know still in our lives right um who are also as important as any of the band members you know in my opinion uh and everybody in that mental health chapter are people in bands that we've played with that we've toured with and we're friends with you know and and they're part of the scene too you know and and um you know, we wanted their take on it. You know, we didn't direct them and, you know, in any way it was like pfft, open forum, you know, and, and, uh, um, so I'm, I'm really, uh, uh, you know, those are my favorite chapters really, you know, where we're giving voice to other people because I don't really have a perspective on the band, you know, uh, so much being in it. It's like, I just don't see, see it the way other people see it, you know? Yeah. Um, for me, it's some of the best chapters of the most harrowing chapters, which almost read like a, like a Tom Clancy thriller would be when Sturgeon <laughs> does something that fucks with Epitaph or not more with Hellcat or with the Rancid Camp. And I, like you're on tour with Lars and the Bastards and Clear Channel oh. Fuck Off comes off, comes out <laughs> or like you've got a relationship with Hellcat outside of the band. And there's yeah. all the stuff that's going on with Hellcat, like reading these chapters, like knowing that you're like <laughs> in both worlds, like that's the part I found like, oh my God, like how's Pratt going to get into this one? Uh, climbing, climbing the ladder straight to the top, right? Yeah. It's, <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Damien, you, for feeling my, my pain. Yeah. I couldn't uh, imagine. I could not imagine that moment where you get given the record. And you're here like, hey, I'm sorry about Clear Channel Fuck Off. And you're on the tour and you have to go back to the venue that night. Like, oh, my God. Like, I I could feel how anxious that must have been. That is the story of Leftover Crack, a series of fucking womp, womp moments. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, here's the new record. I got it. I got it in my hand. You're just so pumped, right? When you get your new record, fuck, here it is. Open it up. And then my you know cashman goes oh yeah by the way man that's really fucked up about you know what he said about rancid i'm like what what do you mean what he said about the fuck are you talking about and going through the lyrics because i wasn't there when the vocals went down yeah. going through the lyrics and i'm just like oh fuck you no because i know that you know i knew how those guys would take it and i knew there was like tension already and it's just like here comes the fucking shit storm god you know and you know, again, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> so, yeah, that that was, uh, yeah, I didn't, uh, uh, I wasn't stoked, was not stoked. Was there anyone you guys reached out to interview that was like, I can't talk about this, I don't want to talk about this? Like, were there people that are still, like, pissed off? Oh, yeah. yes, plenty of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and we knew that was going to be the case, man. I mean, you know, there are plenty of people that still have grudges against the band and, and uh, um, you know, uh, um, it, and, you know, it was, I understand, you know, I, I couldn't fault him. It's like, yeah, fuck, I get it. You know? And, and, uh, there, there are a few key people that, that we would have loved to have in the book, but, uh, they're just like, you know, <laughs> you know, not returning calls, you know, or, uh, <laughs> you know, um, 
you know, Ezra, you know, said at the top, I asked Ezra, uh, you know, and he's just like, nah, I don't want to be involved, man. You know, I, I bugged him, you know, I was up his ass, you know, for a couple of years. And, and finally I just had to concede to his wishes, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I love him to death and I totally understand, you know, um, you know, of course, uh, Jello and, and Tim didn't want to be, you know, um, they didn't say no or anything. It was just like, um, you have reached the voicemail of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so we got the message, you know, and I get it, you know, shit. Um, but, uh, you know, if they're bummed, imagine how I feel. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still in the fucking band. Whoop. Well, that's the thing. Also, I find like it's interesting when you do a book like this when when the band's broken up, right? Like you read that mm -hmm. Lunatics book, they can yeah. be reflective and they've had time to kind of be distant and look back on things, and you know. But you're doing it. It's still like this book functions differently. Like it's almost like you know, like a a, a cry, not a cry for help, but like it's almost <laughs> like you're going like, look what the fuck's going on around me right now, like. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's jotting notes in a notebook as you're headed for the cliff. It's like, fuck, all right, I better get all this stuff in there. Here it comes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Well, they because then you have to live in the world still, right? Like it's yes. not like you do the book and then it's like, oh, it's gone. Like, and I'm sure like when the book comes out, because you guys didn't pull punches, there's probably some people that are bummed out now. I hope not. I mean, you know, um, uh, you know, everybody that did want to talk to us was was more than happy to participate you know and um you know i had personal relationships with with you know just about everybody in there um you know it was like hey you want to talk about some some stuff here and i knew exactly what i wanted to talk to him about you know and and uh um and they were great you know everybody that that's in that book was was great and super cooperative and 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 uh um, and it was a pleasure to do, you know, from that, that standpoint to talk to people about, you know, and reminisce about some of these, you know, that, um, you know, laugh at some of the, some of the shit, you know, because a lot of times that's all you can do, you know, it's just some fucking laugh. Right. And, and, uh, you know, I hope not, but probably, yeah, there are probably, you know, people out there like, fuck these guys, you know, now they have a book, fuck them, you know? Well, were you like, were you upset about anything people said? Cause like, obviously you're in the band putting it together. Like it's one thing for John. I imagine there's like a, you know, like a distance from it, but when you're reading this stuff coming in, like it's bone on bone. Me was that? No. I mean, I have been there for, for all of the worst things that has had that have happened, you know, <laughs> front row center to all of the worst. So yeah. it's just like, pfft. No, I mean, you know, we've had everything. We've had death threats. We've had, you know, um, just, you know, every possible, you know, every possible bad thing. So, uh, you know, in a certain sense, it's like I've developed a thick skin. You know, I like it, but, uh, you know, it's like, pff, doesn't bother me. John, was there any other bands that you've thought about wanting to do a book about? Like, because it's, it's just like, there's so many, there's so few bands that I think warrant it, you know? So, uh, well, honestly, there's a lot of the, the pro I'm thinking about my next project and the problem I have is twofold. First of all, and a lot of interesting bands that are all of this caliber, most of the people are dead. Sadly, yeah. Leftover Crack has some dead people, but a lot of the main players are still around, you know. Uh, but the other, like, really, like, there's such conflict in Leftover Crack and there's such hijinks and chaos. Like, like, 
it, it would be very hard to find another band that has had this roller coaster of a ride that has managed to exist still, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I think the reason that do exist still really is because if you look at it, I, like I think sometimes people kind of short sight the band in that like Sturgeon is incredibly intelligent. Brad is incredibly intelligent. Ezra is incredibly intelligent. Aura is very intelligent, incredibly intelligent. Alec is very, these are all extremely intelligent people, all extremely talented people, you know? And so it really, it's a, I don't want to compare them to Led Zeppelin, but I'm going to compare them to Led Zeppelin because Led Zeppelin rules. Led Zeppelin, all four people in Led Zeppelin <laughs> are insanely talented. You know what I mean? The singer, the guitar, the they're all, that's why Led Zeppelin is Led Zeppelin. And this is the reason why Leftover Crack is Leftover Crack. Why are most of them still around? persistence they're cockroaches and some luck so it's hard to find a band that has had that level of conflict but it has survived despite that conflict and in fact and actually uh, I'm, I'll, maybe i'll throw this to brad a, a discussion brad and i had throughout the book is there's leftover crack and there's the bouncing souls bouncing souls are an awesome band they've got like 12 or 13 killer albums and they're a unit they go on tour they're going to play the show and they're going to kick ass and everyone knows exactly you know it's going to be a bouncing soul show and it'll be great Leftover mm-hmm. crack, it might be amazing and it might be terrible. And I'm at the point where I've seen them enough where the terrible shows are almost as good as the great shows, although I know Brad doesn't feel that way. But the point being is if Leftover, leftover crack was more sane, if they had their stuff more together, would they still be Leftover crack? And I think maybe the answer is no, frankly. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know if Brad feels that way. Brad, is the chaos and the insanity necessary or do you think you could do without it? Well, you know, I used to go see bands you know uh when i was a kid uh and even when i was not a kid and when when any sort of chaos or meltdowns or anything like that happened i was like oh my god this is way better than a band just coming out and playing a show you know any band can just go on stage and play a fucking show you know you see like uh you know a riot happen or you know somebody just completely come unglued uh, you know uh, um like the billy joel the footage of billy joel on stage like <laughs> you know, on YouTube, like <laughs> smashing his piano and just like, turn down the lights. You know, it's like, oh my God, that is the performance I want fucking tickets to, you know? And, and uh, you didn't get to see that stuff every day, but being on the stage side of it, no, fucking sucks. Sometimes, yeah. you know, there would be those times where it was like, you could be, you could be an observer and it'd be like, oh my God, this is hilarious. You know, I can't believe the shit is going on. And, and, and there were other times where, you get in a bottle of piss in your in your face, and you're going, "This is not fucking cool, man, at all." And uh, literal piss, you know. And and um, so I don't know. It, you know, I think that we always, you know, tried to um, not be chaotic and tried to keep it together. And and you know, we really wanted to uh, present as you know, um, you know, some sort of you know. Um, you know, cohesive, like professional unit, you know, but we just could just never get there. I mean, we're all too volatile, you know, and, and, you know, I I mean, that said, I'm really honored to have played, you know, with guys like Ezra and Sturgeon and Ara and Alec, you know, I mean, they're some of the most talented, creative people I've ever had the honor of being in a band with, you know, And, and I think, you know, everybody brought their own thing to the table and, uh, um, you know, and these guys may have not, you know, it, it was evidenced in, in, you know, their side projects, you know, like morning glory and stuff. It's like, Oh my God, this is just, you know, in a, in a parallel universe, you know, these guys would have been in the top of the charts, you know, but um, you know, here we all are, man. And, you know, 
in a broken down van and, and and this is the way it is. I am a lover of chaos, but you know, the bad side of that is um, it doesn't always work out in your, <laughs> in your favor, you know? Yeah. Well, anytime you see a band, you got, you think they have to do this every single night, no matter what they're doing. It's like, Oh my God, they got to do this again tomorrow like mm. this. And it's, yeah. and it's especially when you see a band that exists in chaos and just like, like you're saying, John, like, I think it almost at a certain point doesn't matter if the band could do with the chaos or not. The audience expects the chaos. The chaos becomes part of their packaging. Like uh, the replacements are a band I keep coming back to. And obviously stylistically and, and substance wise, it's probably different what the bands were dealing with, but the same sort of idea where people wanted the chaos, people wanted to see them kind of have a falling down moment on stage. They want to hear those songs. And, and that, I think that's the thing that, is definitely in common with the two bands that you have these great songs that are kind of pulling this, you know, together. But at a certain point, the audience is kind of showing up, hoping for, for the, for the train wreck a little bit. In the book, Alice Hour has what I would say is a pretty uh, observant response. She says, everyone wants to go to leftover crack to see the train wreck. And then when they get the train wreck, they complain about the train wreck, which is, which is true. You, You know, I was just going to say, I think it's interesting, the Bouncing Souls comparison, because I think, you know, and I've, I've talked to Brian for the show and stuff, but I've never really sat down and had this sort of conversation with it. But it seems like they knew they wanted to be a band and the Bouncing Souls were going to be a successful band if it was what they sounded like on the first records and the demo or if it was what they sounded like what they became. You know, they were a band where it's almost like leftover crack. The band kind of develops around this group of people and then just more people kind of keep getting sucked in but it's almost like the band isn't by design it's like the band is is something that almost just has to happen and that's not to undermine both are incredible songwriting groups but Mm. i just think it's uh you know so it's amazing how they're close together geographically yet so diametrically opposed it seems in intention i always wished we could have been the bouncing souls you know we (laughs) would look at those guys and just go god why can't we be more like the bouncing souls? You know, yeah. they just have, they have their shit together. They enjoy each other's company. You know, they're not punching each other out on stage and, and uh, you know, but it just wasn't in the cards, man. And, and, you know, that said, those guys are a rare breed too. You know, I mean, they, they, you know, I, <clears throat> I've known them for a very long time and, and, you know, they've worked for every bit of it, you know, and still do. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> We would tour year round. We did that for a lot of years. We would tour, you know, we didn't come home from tour and go back to jobs or anything. I mean, you know, we went back to a fucking squalor and, and we would tour year round and, and we got so used to the chaos that it became, um, we were totally unaffected by it. You know what I mean? And stuff that, that I guess maybe people that, that aren't used to seeing that stuff every day would just be like, you know, um, ah, you guys are fucking horrible. And this is just, you know, how can you do this? It was just so normal to us. Um, That's the thing that took me back at that, uh, took me back a little bit at that bouncing soul shows, like talking to you and the chaos is unfolding around you. And you're just like, like chill. And we're having this amazing, like sort of conversation, but the meanwhile <laughs> behind you, like it's all burning down behind you. Right now. I'm like, ah, like ah, turn around, turn around. You mean that show we did together? Yeah. <laughs> and stoked for the summer. Yeah. Right. Like, Hold on a minute. Let me just brush myself. Hey, Damien, how's it going? Yeah, nice to see you. Cool. 
all right, I got to go. There's going to be some fucking shit burning down right now. So, yeah. Yeah. And And I don't mean to mock it because it is like, you know, it's funny, especially when you read the book. Some of these stories are super humorous and like amazing to read. And but then like like we were saying earlier, John, where you were saying like about the mental health thing, we don't always necessarily appreciate like, yeah, but there's real trauma coming to this and coming out of this. Like these these are people that are going to be leaving this affected a little bit. And that's like I think a lot of the great punk stories, when we actually slow it down and think about all the parties involved, they become more like tragic tales than heroic ballads, I think. No, and you can totally mock any of this stuff. It is, it, you know, it, it is funny in a, in a you know, a, it, it, in a, it's so tragic that it's funny. And I, I think that's what, you know, got us through a lot of things too, is we're able to just laugh at just this like insanity, you know, and, and, uh, um, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talk about it in the book, right? I think that we talk about that stoked for the summer in the book. And, uh, that, 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 uh, Greg Daly tells that story in the book. Yeah. yeah. Greg Daly tells that story. Yeah. Yeah. Not a fond memory, but it needed, no. <laughs> it needed to go in there. And, you know, it's totally laughable too. It's like, you know, here we are playing this just huge, you know, awesome bouncing souls festival. And wow, this is so great. You know, and there's all these people there. And, I think we played a good set. I was told we played a good set. And, uh, you know, we're on the bill with, we're on the bill with you guys and Lifetime, whom I just loved Lifetime, you know, and and, and the souls and, and, um, you know, crazy in the the brains. And then there's also a fucking dumpster fire that has to go along with it, man. You know, (laughs) (laughs) who ordered the fucking dumpster fire, you know? Well, I think for us, it's like, you know, because you hear the stories, and we've had like Dale, who drives drove us around in England, drove you guys around one time for tour. You know, you know and, Dale. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Dale, Dale used to play in that band Catharsis and another band called John Holmes back in the day, like old UK hardcore bands and stuff. He's now yes, he, he oh, go on. He used to drive that minus around too. We've known Dale. Oh. For, I've known Dale for twenty years. He's great. Actually, I think he told me because that's how he he drove F minus first, and then did leftover crack, and he had to quit the leftover crack tour. He said. Yeah, he couldn't, yeah, he couldn't yeah. deal with the the the. Uh, not everyone's cut out for it, Brad. I guess not everybody's cut out for it, and and you know, understandably so. Yeah. Uh, uh, his chapter is just kind of encapsulates you know so much of of the touring experience with leftover crack, right? <laughs> I think I think that's the thing. It's it's uh, you know like as you you tend like even us knowing that stuff. But then I'm, I I knew you because we met a couple years ago or like now a long time ago, years ago. <laughs> but, you know, I knew Brad. I'm like, yeah, Brad's Brad's pretty normal. I think, you know, it's probably real, but it can't be that real at this point. Like every band kind of hits a baseline. And then, you know, here we are in New Jersey and it's like, no, no, this is like this is uh, this is not not like an act. This is not and can, then the book. You really can't kinda, plan that. Kind, you can't plan that kind of dysfunction. No, uh, Damien. It was like <laughs> you know. Even I'm sorry. No, I was gonna say it's like it's like seeing you guys and then seeing the mighty mighty boss tones just like scared shitless back to the other to their room, and it's just like two oh, that's opposite right. the ends. The boss tones played too. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're they're all in their matching suit jackets. You know, just like yeah. two completely ends of this punk rock spectrum right there yeah. in the dressing room beside each other. You know, the, even the title of that chapter, Damien, uh, uh, or um, uh, 
Dale's chapter, right? Take me to Heathrow. Yeah. That was a saying that, that we would have because, you know, inevitably, you know, about 20 times during any, any given European tour, we toured Europe and England constantly. It would just be like, fuck this. Take me to Heathrow. I'm fucking out of here. So take me to Heathrow was like the tagline. Like some shit would go south. It's like, take me to fucking Heathrow. It, Fuck you guys. And people did that. People got on planes, and just bailed band members. I'm out yeah. of here, you know, or didn't show up to doors or just, you know, we call it parachuting in or we just parachute in, you know, like no rehearsal, just straight off the plane, jet lagged to the first show and just go for it. You know, it, it's uh, I don't think people realize how much bands lose their minds on those long European tours. Like it really uh, yeah. is something where, like you're saying, like, yeah, I've talked to people that have quit their bands mid tour and flown home. The wildest story I heard is RKL, one of their roadies died on the tour and they mm. sent the body home and continued the tour, you know, yeah. like, it, and it was, I think super chunk ran into him on one end of the tour and then on the other end of the tour. Yeah. It was like, no, he passed away. Like it's, just, it is really like you go over there and you can get lost. And especially a band like leftover crack. I imagine that's a real threat of happening. I mean, I love Europe. I, I I love touring in Europe. I love touring in England. And and it's just so, and it, maybe it's because of that. It's just like, you know, everything is like inverted, you know, it's just so different than, than touring in the States. And, and I mean, I guess, especially at, at our level, which, you know, we were play squats, you know, in, 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 uh, uh, a lot of times, you know, exclusively, you know, in Italy and in, in, you know, Germany and, and, um, you know, everywhere. And, and, uh, you know, it can just be like, you know, you're playing in this basement when there's, you know, no, it's, it's August and you're playing in a basement in France in the squat and it's fucking 150 degrees down there and somebody's lighting a fire. Like there was one little hole. This we actually played. There was one little hole for ventilation behind the drummer's head. And, and I look and somebody had lit a fire and was burning trash in the little hole. So the one hole we had for oxygen, somebody lit a fire. And, and it's like, I thought at any moment I was going to fucking have an aneurysm and just die. It was so hot. And, and it becomes this like apocalypse now, like endurance test, you know, of like, nope, I'm not going to fucking, I'm not quitting. I'm fucking not quitting. I'm doing this. Fuck it. You know, and, and I'm getting uh, through this thing, no matter I'm what. getting through this. Yes. I'm getting through this with my, all my PTSD intact. And, and here we go. And, uh, but it's an adventure, man. It's, it's like, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, the crowds too are just, you know, <laughs> they're in a weird shit, man. They're open-minded, you know? And, and not that they aren't here, you know, in the States, but it's just, you know, you've been there. It's different. Yeah. You different. can crack people crack, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think it becomes weirdly isolating because you, you know, not being around people that you can kind of like break off with and talk with in the same sort of way, because you might not share the same language. So a lot of times you show up and there's just no one to talk with, but your own band. It feels like, it's just sort of a different touring experience. And now having not done it for a while, I can't wait to do it again, but take me to Heathrow is definitely something I've probably uttered at a time or two in my years. Now you, now you can like call anybody, you have cell phones and you know, you can stay in touch with, with people at home, right? You fucking call them from in the van. Yeah. But in, you know, in the, in the, you know, even as far as like the early two thousands, 
there was none of that. Right. So you're right. You were just like, you're out in the fucking jungle, man. You know, here you go. And, and you know, um, if you don't speak the language, you know, good luck with the hand signals, you know, and, and that's what you got. Right. <laughs> one time we, we opened for the adolescents though. Uh, one time in, uh, the Basque country. And I carried on a conversation with the promoter for an hour and a half, just using hand signals and band names. Yep. It's amazing how far that can go when you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, were you guys ever, uh, you know, obviously this book I think is, you know, it needs to be an oral history, but was there ever any thought about doing it in another format? No, no, not, you know, if, if I had written it myself, it would have just been my perspective, you know, and that would have been pretty boring to, to me. That was my thinking, you know, it's like, well, it's just one guy's perspective, you know, and I have my opinions and I have my perspective and that might necessarily not be the reality of the situation. Right. And, and so that's what I love about oral history um, books in general, but uh, you know, in any, in any topic, you know, not, not just, you know, uh, rock or band oral histories, but, you know, you get, uh, I love the contradictions and I love the, you know, um, everybody has a different take on things because, mm -hmm. you know, what seems like it's one thing to one person could be completely different to someone else. And, and it leaves it, you know, it, it honors the reader and it leaves it up to them to make up their mind, you know, as to which, you know, story they want to go with, you know, so, and it's a lot more fun that way too, I yeah. think. What are some of your favorite oral histories, John? Oh, well, honestly, we based the entire concept off Legs McNeil's Please Kill Me. I mean, that's the starter. We actually use it as a reference guide for this book. And uh, that's the one everyone's got, got to check out. Give me something better. Also a, a really good one. Mm -hmm. Although what I found what's interesting about Please Kill Me is everyone's got these stories and they're these wild stories with Please Kill Me. I found I disagreed with a lot of the people's perspectives, particularly the famous Misfits show in the Bay Area. Everyone's like, the Misfits came out and beat people up. They're horrible. And I'm like, no, that kind of makes them awesome because of the Misfits. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, man. I mean, so anyways, give me, uh, uh, please kill me is the cream of the crop. Give me something better. Also an excellent, excellent oral history for sure. Have, have you read the book From the Velvets to the Voidoids? I can't remember. I have name. not. It's like a guy who did a whole book as like an answer book to Please Kill Me. Like you're saying, like for the perspective stuff, like some guy who's like, and it's awesome because like, I love Please Kill Me, but it's also, it's even more cool to me that it somehow inspired another person to write a whole other book because they were so upset after reading it. It's like, that's awesome. If you can do that, like that's, that's amazing. You're inspiring people with, with uh, the rejection of what you did as much as you're inspiring people with what you did. I also love, well, oh, go on. Okay. That is the interesting thing about Please Kill Me. A lot of people in that book are unhappy with how they're portrayed. And a lot of them say it was taken out of context or isn't accurate, which is, I mean, that's kind of the thing. That, I mean, what, what I thought, what I'm particularly pr proud of Leftover Crack is, and Please Kill Me, like a lot of the people, Debbie, Harry, Iggy Pop say, well, that's not exactly how it went down. And, you know, that's not all I said. And Leftover Crack, we've got the people arguing with each other in the book. <laughs> Which yeah. I was very happy, you, you know. Like there's one, there's one wonderful part where Jesse Townley is talking about why Leftover Cracks no longer alternative tentacles, and Serge is like, "It's all lies," and I'm so, I'm so mad. I don't even want to talk about the truth. You, you know what I mean? And yeah. so I, I am, I, I mean, to pat ourselves on the back, which I will, is there's parts and let, let because there's so many conflicting uh, perspectives. We made it a point to have all sides. Anybody that wanted to, anybody that had an interest in the band. 
that had a side to tell. We said, you can tell your side of the story. And so we've got people arguing with each other in the book, which I, I was particularly proud of. Were there any parts that you guys butted heads over, like stuff that you're like, John, this should be included and stuff where you're proud of, you're like, I'd rather this not be in there. Oh, yes, absolutely. All of my interviews. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I, I can't, uh, oh, go ahead, Brad. I'm sorry. John would interview me, right? And, yeah. And, and and then he would send me the transcript. I'd be like, "Oh, fuck that, man!" I, you know, I'm I'm a fucking moron. We're not putting this in there. And him and I would battle tooth and nail about it, right? He's like, "No, dude, you gotta put this in there." And and then we would talk about why, you know, why I didn't want it in there. And and uh, huh, that was the worst part was all of my all of my input. See, here's the thing about Brad. Brad and, and Brad, I, I think I don't think Brad will mind me saying this. Brad will, will say like, "Oh, I sound so stupid," or, or, or like, like Brad came up with the phrase "architects of self-destruction" in the back of the book. And then Brad's like, "Oh, I sound so." I'm like, Brad's like, "I sound so stupid." I'm like, "Stupid! You're, you're like talking like po Kerouac or Ginsburg poetry just out of the air, <laughs> and, and and you think that's stupid?" You know, I'm like, "No, this." And so, it was very important to me to have people have people transcribed as they spoke. Sometimes when people will write, they'll be like, it was a brusque autumn evening and the scarlet, you know, the scarlet leaves were, you know, drifting across. Like no one talks like that. They say it was raining and it was fall. So we wanted to have it exactly as people talked. So yeah. that was some people sometimes thought they came across as ineloquent when really Brad in particular, Sturgeon in particular, R in particular, came across as these amazing, well, in my perspective, amazing poets that had wonderful insight and wonderful poetry in their language and they didn't even know it. And I wanted to leave that intact. So that's what we fought about. Brad's amazing poetry. Well, and also Brad's voice, you really do seem to be the impartial one in a lot of these situations where you're the one trying to just be like, let's just play music and just do this and then it just feels like as you're saying there's there's always something that's you know <laughs> gonna undermine it's it at every turn I just, like I wanted everybody to be friends and i just wanted to play fucking music and fight the good fight you know yeah there, there's so much to to you know to fight against in in you know in, in the world that you know let's not you know um let's have some unity you know and and uh <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, if if it had been left up to me, you know, uh, all of my um, uh, any input I would have had, any of my quotes, and there would have been it was an autumn evening. The mist was uh, <laughs> would have been super pompous, super pretentious. Uh, and because now you've left the band, right? Like you're no longer playing with them. Correct. Yeah. Uh, was was that something you kind of came to? Like, were you was that in the back of your mind when you guys were finishing the book? Because it kind of comes very shortly after the book comes out, right? Was this something you were mulling over while doing this thing? Or is this something that came out afterwards to you? I, I think part of it was, you know, doing the book and then looking at it and going, my God, yeah. <laughs> you know, but really uh, I, I didn't, you know, it's not something that I wanted to do. It's not, you know, it, it's just something that uh, at least for now, it's something that had to happen, you know? And you were talking about, you know, diametrically opposed philosophies, you know, and, and uh, um, you know, I think in the end, that's, that's, you know, what it came down to. And, and uh, um, you know, without getting too much into it, I mean, you know, I, I, I love all of those guys in the band. I think that, you know, the lineup that, <clears throat> that played punk bowling, um, you know, was was a great lineup 
and and some of my you know playing the Sandra from World Inferno, who I was just a you know a super fan of that band, you know, and and we toured with them many many times, and and um, you know Donnie and Alan Eve, they're all again you know people who are talented in their own right you know, and, and, and have their own bands and are doing their own things. And, and, uh, so it was like a super group, you know, for me. Um, but yeah, there were, there were certain things that, that it was like, eh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, it's in the book, I guess, really. <laughs> yeah. It's all in the book, you know? Yeah. And, uh, um, so, you know, I'm bummed about it. Right. I'm bummed, you know, it's 22 year long run, but, uh, you know, for now that's what's happening. Right. You never say never, but, you know, I got some other things I can do, you know, and some other, you know, I'm never at a, at a loss for ideas. Right. But, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, I'm working on some other things and, and, uh, um, so we'll see, you know, we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, I can only imagine how exhausting it is to kind of go through that process of looking back on everything and laying it out all there in front of you, you know, like it's a, uh, it's like a emotional audit, you know, like to have hours and hours of basically your life broken down by every single person that you've met, you know, and then having yeah. to put it together, it, you probably look at things a little differently afterwards. Yeah, in the end, it was kicking my ass. You know, it was just, it was kicking my ass, you know, my, my, uh, you know, my mental health was, it was suffering, you know, so, um, you know, and to let go of some things, you know, the chaos in the end was just getting to me, you know what I mean? It's like, you can't sustain that. I couldn't sustain that for, you know, forever without having a complete fucking breakdown myself, you know, um, mm-hmm. So, uh, um, you know, we'll see how I do without chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're, you're still doing bands and you're still going out with other bands. Right. So oh, you're still, you got the chaos in your life still, <laughs> maybe not as much, but absolutely. No, you're right. And you know, I still, uh, you know, I'm playing, you know, in the adolescence and, you know, I have some other, you know, adolescents are great. You know, I, I love all those guys and, and, um, you know, I'm starting some new things with some people that are amazing. And, you know, I mean, Leftover Crack is a very special band to me, you know, very special. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's bound like, I can't, uh, once again, like think of a different sort of touring experience than being around the adolescence people who are, in my experience, like some of the nicest human beings and, and very much like a completely different vibe. I can imagine backstage and in the van, like not saying like, one's worse or anything but just di- very different vibe yes i mean they're you know they're all like salt of the earth people they are you know and and mm-hmm. uh um you know and, and adults right and and uh um it is completely different you know it, it uh um you know it's it's uh uh you know it's nice man it's nice touring with those guys really you know um, you don't have to worry about, uh, um, you know, when the, when the next fucking, <laughs> you know, you know, when the next bummer shit show is going to happen, you know, and, and, uh, you know, that isn't a factor, um, there, but, um, you know, and not taking away from leftover crack really too. I mean, because I, you know, I'm a fan of the bummer shit shows, 
but uh you know i don't know i remember every single bad show i played they stay in my mind forever you know i don't remember all the good shows i don't even remember most of the okay shows but i definitely remember every single bad show like they stay with me but i think they're also because they're like you know those are the shows you'd never forget like you'd never forget going to see you know uh you know a band that's 10 seconds in and then everything falls apart on stage like that's going to stay with you forever you know and that's those are the shows well, there's, that... there's that kind of show there's the show where you play bad or you feel you play bad yeah. right and there's that one that's like oh god you know and people are telling you you played great which only like you know just makes it worse right it's like please just tell me we're a shit you know and and uh and it's like okay i played like shit so there's that show but then there's the other kind of show where after you play the promoter doesn't want to pay you because you're a bunch of fucking assholes and not only that but all of the security from the club is called their friends and their boys are coming from the neighborhoods around town and they want to beat your ass on top of it so you got to fucking sneak out of town under fucking blankets in people's cars yeah <laughs> there's that kind of show too yeah. we played plenty of those you know um <laughs> Or, you know, where you're getting death, you know, you're going to show up and, and you, you know, you guys come to town, you're going to fucking die, you know, and, and, uh, um, you know, there's that kind of stuff too. And, and it's like, ah, God, you know, um, you know, or the, the sound man just, you know, completely unplugs you, you know, because you've been, you know, you know, somebody has been insulting the, the monitor engineer or whatever, you know? Yeah it's it's you know it's hard enough playing in a band like every time someone finds out that the name of my band's fucked up they're like oh it must suck when you go to a border or must suck when you have to deal with like any sort of official situation i could not imagine having records called some of the things you guys have records called being called leftover crack crossing an international border and maybe it's just because the american border terrifies me so much but i can't imagine what it's like when they go through your merch and that stress we you know dale talks about in, in the book, like, you know, the, the, um, uh, you know, the cops in, in, <laughs> in England, almost opening the box of the kill cop shirts. Well, that actually happened to us at the Canadian border last time. We went, and we had this customs guy who was totally like, you know, it, you know, in our corner, right. He's like, Hey, you guys, you know, I know that you, you have some records here. People have some, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, criminal records but we're going to sort it out and we're, we're going to get y'all through and you know hey real quick we got to go through your your stuff here in your van and, and and this guy who had been our buddy all fucking day because we were there like six hours right it's Canadian yeah. yeah so we got to pull your stuff out it's a you know it's a it's a you know matter of procedure pulls out the boxes and boom opens the fucking kill cop who it was like the shoot cops not shoot drugs not what was it shoot cops uh, or maybe it was a kill, it was a kill cops shirt. That yeah. was, it. yeah. And he just looked at it and was just like, you know, there was just that moment in time where everything just stopped and frozen. Where he's looking at us, we're looking at him. Oh, you know, the heads. You're probably looking at the heads. You know, the hardcore <laughs> <laughs> apocalypse. Now, you know, just uh, yeah. There's these shirts. Hey, don't take it personally, man. You know. <laughs> you want a shirt you know and and uh and that was uh, awkward that was fucking awkward uh, you know we're now in the generation of like the children of leftover crack and you know i i certainly see kids and bands and people that have come on this show that talk about how like leftover crack was a huge 
gateway band for them or a really important band. I'm just wondering, John, are you seeing that now more and more covering punk? Like, are you seeing like the kids that are like, you know, like the, the, the ones that would have been the generation that would have been buying these records as they first dropped? Yeah, well, I, I've always been thankful that my parents are very much standard parents. My parents aren't cool parents. They're not jerks. They're, you know, my dad listens to like oldies. You know what I mean? My mom listens, my mom's favorite CD is like Lou Bega, you know, like literally, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and so I'm always freaked out like when I'm handing out flyers or whatever. Or, and, and like some kid, you know, 14, 15, like, oh yeah, my dad got me into punk. You know, my dad loves choking victim. He's going to, I'm like, what? Like your yeah. dad's in the choking. Like I can't imagine having a dad that's in the choking victim. You know what I mean? Like that'd be so freaky. You know, but but that's where we're at now. But what's interesting, and, and I don't know how this dynamic will see, permutate, I guess, over the next ten or fifteen years, is like Damien, you and I are roughly the same age, and so like our parents, you know, weren't really into punk, and they might not get something like shoot cops or kill cops. You know, they, they wouldn't get that, you know. But now that the kids that are thirteen or fourteen, their parents are into punk and extreme punk and hardcore. They don't have any conflict with the parents. Like the parents are like, yeah, that's cool. Like no matter what the kids have, there's yeah. nothing that can really offend the parents, you know, it's, except for like maybe like, you know, something like it's almost like like boy bands or K-pop. K-pop would be more offensive to punk parents than like grindcore. You know what I mean? Even though it's more quote wholesome. And so it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic develops. But to answer your question, they're definitely and actually and, and not to go off on a tangent. The other interesting effect is leftover crack and choking victim. If you get the joke, it's funny. If you don't get the joke, it's supposed to be scary. The mm -hmm. pentagrams are supposed to be funny if you get it, but if you don't get it, it's supposed to be scary. You know. But now that the parents, you know, have pentagrams and you know, no leftover cracking choking victim, the band is almost like wholesome and we're well, not wholesome, but like not scary, almost comforting. So it's interesting how the entire dynamic of leftover crack and bands like that has totally turned around, you know. Yeah. And so I don't know yeah. how that's going to affect the youth, honestly. It's, it's interesting to watch. It. Go on, sorry, Brad. You know, I wanted to ask you, Damien. Uh, 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 did you have you ever had that that moment where you were at a customs, you know, or at a border and they asked you your band name and you went fucked up and, and they went, come on, you know, what's your band called? No, we're called fucked up. Is, is that right? Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the worst. The one was the one was because we got we eventually because we got busted early trying to cross illegally. And so once we got busted, we had to go legit. So we've been going legit pretty early on, like where you pay for the visas and all that stuff. So. You show up with the paperwork it's on your paperwork it's on your like official american visa it says fucked up and just the look at the border guard face like i can't even imagine what it'd be like to see their face when they're seeing a shoot cop shirt but like at the same time they're like you're kidding me and you're like yeah. no no like, yeah. they let you play in venues with that name and it's yeah. just, most of the time it's okay but there's been a couple times where they've been really bummed out and then one time we had a guy who was like, what kind of music is it? And we're like, ah, it's kind of like, I guess, punk mixed with metal. He's like, oh, like, like hardcore. And we're like, yeah, he's like, so like uh, unit pride or like neurosis. And we're like, uh, I guess closer to neurosis. He's like, I used to go to the Gilman all the time. I saw Crim Shrine. I saw, you know, just sort of like firing off all these bands. And it was That's like, yeah, yeah, it was awesome. I punished him for a good extra five minutes about these shows, but <laughs> didn't have any records though. We always just now. You know what kind of band? Ah, oh, rock and roll, man. Good old, you know, it's rock and roll. <laughs> you know what's the name of the band? LOC. We're just LOC. Like, what's that? You know, like Loco, man. Like fucking just Loco rock and roll. 
Please don't open the box. Please don't open the box. Please don't open the box. And we don't want to have a conversation about the name Leftover Crack. We're not fucking talking about that with you. We're not talking about punk. We're just a good old timey rock and roll band just here to play some rock and roll for you boys. Loco. (laughs) Yeah, the... The Canadian border is, I've heard, no joke. So, you know, like you only, you never get to experience, we only get to experience each other's borders mm. in the way that they're experienced. But like, yeah, it, it's, it's never, no boarding, no border crossing is a good border crossing, except we England. Have tried, we have tried every, we've tried multiple ways to get into your fine country and, and you know, <laughs> like canoe rides, you know, the waiting for the get the old man with the fucking canoe like yeah. all of the things right yeah yeah and, uh, um you know it's funny i was just working on a, a piece about about border crossing today but um uh i've heard in my own experience is the american border of fucking shitheads man when they turn you away at canadian customs and you have to come back through on the american side they're like ultra dicks to you you know yeah yeah I don't know how they are to you guys, but if you're like an American guy that just got fucking, you know, ejector seat that, you know, that experience isn't awesome either. I remember one time we we decided we're okay. This is the time we're getting into Canada, man. And and like, you know, some of us are going to climb in the back of trunks and we're going to (laughs) cross this way. Some of us are digging a fucking tunnel. And then Alec was like, uh, you know, just going to fly in because he didn't have any jet, you know, no criminal he was like the only one of us that didn't have a record right it's like yeah. oh, see you assholes in canada i'm flying in so he gets there and, and he has this base in a soft case and he's, he's coming through customs and they're like oh you got to basically you know you got a guitar with you so uh you know what are you, what are you doing here with the guitar well i'm just gonna jam with some friends we're gonna do like a drum circle or some shit oh okay alec bailey and customs agent reaches over to the computer fucking my spaces alec bailey and see oh so why don't you tell me about leftover crack and these fucking dates you have here starting tomorrow and boom kick kicked the fuck back out to the states and barred from coming in to canada for like a couple of years google fucked all of us that's how we got fucked too yep yeah google their real names and so you could no longer use the fake contract thing where you'd have like a fake flyer or fake recording contract for yes somewhere else you're like oh we're just cutting through america to get to winnipeg <laughs> um or like oh we're just like going down to record then they once they could google your name and that myspace or that you know newspaper in the weekly article came up you were so why, screwed why does canada want to keep the rock and roll out i don't understand i don't understand either it's like that we definitely apparently have a free trade agreement you think there'd be like an exchange of bands going back and forth you know right but because the shows there are always insane i mean historically shows in canada are amongst the best you know it's like every show is like playing detroit you know what i mean the next time leftover crack plays montreal it will be fucking crazy or quebec city like those places i could only oh my god like i was gonna say like next to like i guess southern california i would say the punk rock capital you know in terms of like band people going to see shows is, is quebec city and montreal at different times yeah. like so yeah. many kids are going to see these bands play yeah we we only made it in i think once as the full band um with all you know me ezra alec sturgeon and uh uh and ara and uh and the shows were just i mean you know 
they were just insane. It was like, you know, completely did not expect that. But, you know, I've been there with other bands and, you know, working for, you know, I was roading for bands and, and um, you know, always it's just, you know, uh, so people are so enthusiastic and just so friendly and, and uh, you know, it's a great experience, man. I just love it. up, love it up there, you know, just love it. It's interesting how like geographically things were like different types of punk music were taken to. Like, I'm always fascinated by that. Like, you know, why is like power violence on the East coast kind of like nerdy, you know, thinking persons quote unquote, hardcore uh, to put it, you know, as bluntly as possible or as weirdly as possible. Whereas on the West coast, it's like street music. It's like, you have to be super fucked up and hard to be a power violence person on the west coast like historically you know it's just like it's 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 fascinating how like quebec for example loves metal and loves punk you know but certain types of hardcore don't go over there as well it's just i find it always the regionality of this thing i find one of the most interesting parts of it and i love that you know i mean i think that's the beauty of it is is um you know it's just not one thing you know uh you know it's it's um, you know, people have different, uh, different values and different tastes, you know, and, and, uh, you know, that's one of the, the great things about touring and traveling is just, you know, tapping into what's going on in, a, in you know, a different city and a different scene. And, and, you know, um, uh, you know, at least for me, you know, that was one of the, you know, that's one of the rewarding things about doing that, you know, um, is, uh, um, you know, getting to, uh, uh, and, and to see bands, you know, from, uh, um, uh, from different cities too, and different, uh, you know, uh, countries and, and, uh, it's just, you know, the diversity is, is, um, it's, uh, you know, it's great. I think that's John. what I love about the book too. Like the book has got that kind of like, you know, cause leftover crack reflects that too, right? Like you got like, every you know it's a new york band as much as a new york band like ultimately you're talking about philadelphia stuff a lot of philadelphia stuff in the book a lot of obviously southern california stuff like yeah. it really is like a band that kind of reflects how big this thing is like what other band in the world links squatter squatter rot and rancid yeah yeah i mean we have connections to you know personal connections to those cities too you know in those scenes that that you were just naming i mean uh it's a lot of different you know we've lived all over the members of, of the band of you know um i think i only lived in new york city with them for a very brief period <laughs> right you know um you know maybe in the beginning but uh but i know sturgeon lived in philly for a long time and um alec lived out on the west coast and i lived in new york and you know lawrence kansas and and um you know so uh um you know we have we have uh um you know roots in those cities as well but thank you for saying that that's that's um you know that's nice yeah i think i think that's like also i, I love the fact that you've got that um you know all the world's kind of convening all the world's kind of coming together and it's almost like new york the new york that produces the band disappears after a certain point you know so there's nowhere really for the band to return home to you know yeah. that that sea squat it's gone like all that stuff is kind of gone at a certain point because that city changes so much and it you know you go there now and it 
it's that's what one of the great things about reading the book. It's almost like a time capsule of that city towards the end of it. Right. Yeah. It's it's you know. I mean, I, I, I didn't even grow up there. I can only imagine how it is for the people that grew up there, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It changes so fast there. I mean, you know, where I live is, has changed a lot since I was a kid, but, you know, everything moves so fast there. It's just, you know, fucking next. And then everything's just buried, you know, everything that, from the prior, you know, decades, you know. I don't know. What do you think, John? Do I think that the book serves as a time capsule of New York? Well, I mean, honestly, even though Leftover Crack is often thought of as a New York band, and they are a New York band at their core, Brad's from Southern California. And the important one of the many important parts about Brad is Brad brings a certain so- SoCal nihilism that we've heard on Danger House Records, that we heard from that whole, you know, the, the germ scene with well, Danger House, aren't they? That whole SoCal first wave scene, Brad brings that, like, nihilistic self-destructive that isn't overly you know uh thought out or it's primal and at its you know primal and at its at its core comes from the heart whereas you know the uk stuff which influenced sturgeon and ezra and uh a whole lot is a lot of that is very like all crass's lyrics are very cerebral which i I love crass and so that's why we have you know the cerebral coming from the new york a la wet the way of you know uk anarcho stuff we've got brad's primalism not to mention that sturge lived in the bay area for a while and that all comes together and is one of the reasons why leftover crack is so such a self-contradiction it's a punk ska pop metal punk band which honestly makes them sound like insane clown posse on paper but instead <laughs> of being insane clown posse it's like honestly like one of the baddest ass you know most ferocious but also funny bands that i've ever heard and so that's why Leftover Crack is, t- I, I would say, anchored in a locale, but also not anchored any- anywhere. They're a walking contradiction. I realize that sounds kind of, um, what's what I'm looking for, academic, and it is, but it, it's, it's kind of true. So Yeah, I think they sound like the first seven, ten lookout records all blended together, right up to the first you know, Neurosis 7-inch. And you know what? That, no disrespect to Insane Clown Posse. They're fucking awesome. You got to have them on here. One of those guys, one of these guys. I haven't, I've been looking. I have been looking. There's not a lot of punk connection save for winding up on the wrong side of Coldest Life at their very first show. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. The, the, the Jeff episode from Coldest Life, he kind of goes into the story. That's, There's two Insane Clown Posse stories on there. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're right. You know, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting you, John. I'm sorry. Oh, well, I was just going to point out, Sturgeon actually makes this point in the book, is Damien says, Leftover Crack sounds like the first seven or ten Lookout records. Sturgeon makes the point is that, and it's interesting that Damien and Sturgeon are on the same wavelength, and that Sturgeon thinks the reason his music sounds like he does is because he's influenced by Crimshine, Neurosis, and who's the other band that shared uh, a Jawbreaker, and all yep. three of those bands had the same practice uh, practice studio, not studio, mm-hmm. practice mm-hmm. area. And mm-hmm. so Sturgeon, Sturgeon has the exact same thought that Damien has with regards to the foundation of the band. I'm sorry, Brad, go ahead. I love that. You know, how, you, you know, it's, it's, you, you hear people's influences and, and you're like, your band sound, I, I don't think we sound anything like any of those bands that, that you just named, but I, I could be wrong. Uh, but to me, it doesn't, uh, leftover crack doesn't, but uh, anyways, you know, I, Back to, you know, the time capsule aspect, uh, you know, I was talking to John John from Nausea about it and, uh, uh, you know, about the Lower East Side. And he was like, you know, it's like 
you know, you go there. He, he, he grew up. He hasn't been living there for a little bit. Uh, he lives outside the city, but he's all, you know, I go back in there to visit my mom and it's like, you know, it, it's like we never existed. It's like that scene never happened. All the flyers, everything on the telephone poles, all the graffiti's gone. Everything's gone. It's like we were never there, you know, and, and, and that really struck me when he said that. It's like, you know, how sad that was, right? How sad that is, you know, and, and um, it's, you know, it's not that their impact doesn't. No, I didn't mean cut you off there. Sorry. I mean, not that they're, you know, that that their impact, you know, that nausea and, and all of those bands haven't been felt, you know, worldwide in the community, but there's just no record of it there. You know, it's, it's fucking gone. Well, but it's interesting to think about like, you know, the city wouldn't be like it is without these things too, right? Like these art spaces are what attracted the art gallery or these like punk band spaces is what attracted these art galleries and obviously cheap rent and, you know, that begats the condos and moving in eventually the coffee shops. Like it's so interesting to think about it, the way these scenes influence the geography of these places, especially look at the Brooklyn waterfront, like how <laughs> that was like sort of the last vestige of New York arts and squat venues and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, now it's a bunch of condos built on these graves of these venues, but still trying to market themselves. Like they're part of this cultural hubbub that lies That's beneath them. Funny, right. It's pretty funny. It's a How Toronto Philly? There's, there's still squats in Philly. Isn't there John? I think not, I mean, not, not really. And actually Brad, I, like, I'm glad you brought that up. It is literally like right now, literally like Philadelphia is under attack, at least from our perspective. And then I'm not going to name names because I don't want to inflame the situation. But so there are two venues right now that are all ages, not corporate. I mean, they're, 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 the venues themselves are corporations, but they're not, they're independent, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. and they're all ages. They're not bars. And honestly, they're among the, the best venues in Philadelphia. Great sound. If I've thrown shows at both of them, you can go there. It's easy to throw a show. It's, it's a fun, safe environment. The young people can go there. You know, they, they can't go into the bars and those venues are fantastic. When those venues formed it was in an undesirable area over the past three or four or five years philadelphia has shot way up in value both of those venues have come under attack from certain government agencies and with one venue that agent has has like that agency has been hitting them repeatedly even after they get cleared they get hit again and and i mean i don't want to get on on the wrong end of a defamation lawsuit but i feel as though there's greater hands behind the scene than just someone worrying about a leaky drain pipe you know what i mean mm-hmm. particularly because it's very high um high uh, value property now when it didn't used to be the result was the kids started throwing shows in certain areas in philadelphia like under a bridge or there's a couple of bridges in philadelphia where, where shows happen damien and brad probably know them um and so they start throwing shows there then all of a sudden the cops start showing up so that one of the guys that was throwing the shows there got a permit but of course crust punks being crust punks you know, they, they bring beer to, and, and they're not they're not like sneaky about it. And so the cops let them not the cops, the, the, the city lets them get the permits and the cops wait for like the first band to play. And the cops come in. They got the permit, but there's alcohol. there, So they shut it down there. So it's like you can't do it legit and you can't do it not legit. And so mm-hmm. I, I very I very much feel that Philadelphia is under attack of that right now. And, and I'm, I'm going to get up on a platform here. One of those venues really was under attack. And basically they had to petition the city to kind of exist. 
And the way they kind of beat back the city, if you will, or convinced the city is a lot of people wrote in letters. A lot of people showed up at the hearing and acted as witnesses as to why the cultural art scene is important. The point being is it can feel like a lost cause and sometimes it is. But if you can, I guess, fight back legitimately against things that might not be legitimate attacks on venues that that are are seemingly legitimate, then you can make a difference sometimes. And that's why it really is worth the fight, because if every bar in the city, if every venue in the city is a bar and more and more bars are owned by giant corporations these days, that really does extremely negatively affect art. And it is important. It might seem like a little thing or it might seem like it's a lot of effort for not much. But the 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 result is massive, and I know it's massive. And I'll tell you why. Because I threw a show once. It was uh, like well, I think it was Catbite, uh, Rodney Anonymous, or whatever. And I never really cared about all ages shows that much. I didn't think it was that important. But at that show, we had like three or four people, kids that like were kids, and they were like, uh, they, they, they just like I heard them talking, and they're like, oh, we could finally get into the show. And it and it really is, it might not seem like a much, but it like it, it's a ripple effect in that like. When young people can get into art spaces that are safe, maybe a little edgy, but safe and no one's really going to get hurt, where they can express themselves and see interesting things, that is really how you get the art scene to grow and thrive, and it really is important. But you know what? I mean, on the, on the other hand, there's always going to be house shows. There's always going to be underground things. But even so, it's nice if you have a legitimate venue. I don't know where I'm going with this. The point being is keep arts alive, and fighting back can make a difference. I don't know how big the effect is, but I feel like it's somewhat substantial. Well, Sorry for that academic dissertation. <laughs> No, I think, but that that is important, right? Because we're talking. It's like on this show, especially. There's like a there's an over emphasis on the historical, and not enough looking at what's happening in the present. And the reality is, like you, it was a lot more conducive to be a young band at other points in history than I think it is right now, and to be a young musician, like whatever you're doing music wise, like spaces are really expensive now to practice in. You know, rents are crazy high in a lot of cities that would be desirable to live in like you're saying venues are you know not having these spaces and it's amazing when you look you know from doing this show for so long every time you're talking to one of these artists like about where they came from it's amazing how many of them came from periods where there were great venues or there were great resources at their disposal like how many people came out of sweden thanks to that swedish practice that they used to have about providing practice space and instruments and recording studios for young bands like it caused a swedish music explosion like their music went all over yeah. the world because of that sort of system yeah. and it's just amazing to see like when you put that kind of stuff in the kind of results it yields down the line not just in music but in all culture that kind of comes out of this music thing i agree and, and you know i'm but I think, you know, people always find a way to adapt. You know what I mean? It's like they will always find a way to adapt. And, and, and you know, it, it, I haven't been, <clears throat> granted, I haven't been in New York in a couple of years now. But last time I was there, you know, there, there was a, um, you know, a really like vibrant, alive underground music and venue scene, uh, you know, going on in Brooklyn. Right. And, and there were, you know, just all of these spaces that people were doing shows and, and, um, you know, it was thriving, man, the arts and the music scene there uh, a couple of years ago. And it's like that here in Los Angeles, too. You know, it's it, a lot a lot of the uh, of the bigger and, and uh, you know, longstanding, like, uh, you know, quote unquote, legitimate venues have been bought out, you know, but 
the other side of that is it's created this, you know, um, especially like in, in Los Angeles, fertile ground for people to be opening these just fly by night, you know, operations, you know, and they're only meant to last, you know, on a show by show basis, you know, but um, the one thing that does suck is, yeah, practice spaces are so fucking expensive. What's up with that? $30 an hour. Who the fuck's got that? <laughs> well, who would want a rehearsal factory or rehearsal room? Uh, you know, I'm dropping the name of where we practice, but like who, who want, you know, who would want to own one of these when you can have a condo, you can yeah. sell it for millions and millions and millions of dollars. Like that's what sadly the arts are competing with now. It's, yeah. it's like condos and it's with condos. You know, yeah. And it's music stores. Everything is, is, you know, like in Toronto, we're condo city here. They like to call it. So it yeah. is an omnipresent threat. Um, I, I kind of also love the idea, though, about this sort of decentralized scene. You know, here we're talking earlier, Brad, before we went on air about how you're doing a new band, you know, all over the world, you know, and there's a lot of people that come on the show, like, from different scenes where they're meeting, you know, on the internet, you know, like, it's it's yeah. it's really like, it, it's changed uh, the way your scene has to come together, you know, like the idea of like meeting people that are more like-minded than geographically close is is it seems to be a choice that people are going for now if you know anything good came from you know the pandemic i mean personally i started collaborating with with um you know a lot of people that i didn't even not only lived in the same state didn't live in the same state with but you know internationally too and and uh you know i i'm like well fuck it I'm going to learn garage band, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it's free and I have it on my computer. And, and so we would just send waves back and forth and, and, um, you know, I love that. And and now we have like, you know, full sets of songs and, and, you know, shit, maybe we can just meet somewhere and start playing these, you know, um, you know, maybe be, people are being pushed out into sort of these, you know, uh, middle America places or, um, you know, I don't know, maybe the next scene explosion will be fucking Bozeman, Montana or something. You know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, who knows, you know, could happen. Yeah, no, it, I think it's also, you know, I think what, to bring it back to Leftover Crack, it's amazing how, like, we're talking about how hard the band is to pin down in genre, how it could be any of these early, like, influences we're talking about, metal or, or punk or ska or what have you it's almost very reflective of where people's music tastes are now where you don't have to be as committed to one genre in the same way as you once did, because you don't have to buy music in the same way you once did. So I find like most young people are into everything, a little bit of everything, you know, and there's obviously people that are more into some things than others, but at the same time, you know, that influence is coming in there where you're hearing music now that sounds like, there's all sorts of stuff going on there that that you know it doesn't have the same religious adherence to genre as people once had what do you think about that john you know damien brings up a real interesting point is are we at the end of the era of the hardcore guy and are we at the end of the era of the oi, like the hardcore guy that collects every hardcore record and all he listens to is hardcore or the oi guy where he's got every oi i'll never forget at a record swap meet at a record fair recommends him i saw this dude and he had like all these obscure oi records for sale i'm like oh wow i'm like you must really love oi and he's like well i used to i'm like well what are these he's like this is my collection 
one day I decided I couldn't listen to Oi anymore. You know, <laughs> so he's like selling every Oi record there was because because well, if you ask me, Oi does kind of all sound. The point being is maybe we are at the end of the hardcore like the hardcore guy. Like maybe that guy won't yeah. exist. Maybe the street punk guy won't exist anymore. I mean, Damien's right. If you see the young people, like just in how they dress, they got a leather jacket on, but then they got on like 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 Timberland boots or something like that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's a complete everything is a culture mash now, which mm-hmm. is which is interesting. Although the, the counterattack, and I'm not, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here. Everything is a culture mash now, and and a lot of music is a collage built off previously used things. The fact that people so much music and art is now really just a disassemblage of previously existing things, and I guess recontextualization, does that mean that people won't learn the fundamentals and will I guess lose the soul in the music? I don't know. I mean, I realize that makes me sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but I think there's some validity there in that. Like you listen to like you know, Muddy Waters or Howling Wolf or even Rolling Stones or even ACDC or Led Zeppelin. There's a real humanity there. But if you're not building those pieces yourself, maybe that gets lost. I don't know. I realize I'm getting kind of abstract here, but I'm just rapping. Just well, talking. Think, whatever, Grandpa. You know, I, <laughs> you damn kids. <laughs> I kind of like that, you know, um, you know, everything, anything fucking goes now. You know what I mean? That's like, you know, I think about my kid, you know, and his friends and, you know, he's 23 and it's like fucking anything goes, you know, and, and to an extent, I mean, that's like a reflection of our reality. You know, it's like, we're just so fucking bombarded with everything all the time, you know, and, and these are, these are kids that grew up, you know, they don't know anything. They don't know any pre-internet, you know, or pre-cell phone kind of existence, you know, all they know is being fucking constantly bombarded with everything in the world all at once. And it's a reflection of that, you know what I mean? And then trying to carve out your identity in the midst of all that, you know, is, is, is the same challenge it's always been, I think, you know, if that's something you're interested in having your own identity, you know, and, and, and they're doing that, right? And, and it's a composite of, of, I think, of all the shit that's being thrown at them, you know, that to me, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I love the, the fucking, you know, uh, the old, you know, fucking hardcore guy, you know, as, as much as anything. I mean, I'm fucking an old fucking hardcore guy, but, you know, it, it's like, I can see, man, to me, it's like, I can see where all this comes from. And, you know, um, I went to a party the other night where I watched, you know, Classics of Love play, right? And, and you know, the kids that, that were at that party, you know, Jesse and I were definitely the fucking oldest guys at this fucking, in this room, you know what I mean? And, and but these, you know, um, these kids were digging it, you know, and they like, they were fucking in it, you know, they were in it too. And, and so I don't know, man, I just see it as the natural progression, you know, that's, what's going to happen. You know, I find, I find what you said earlier, John, about like kids finding all these things that are meant to be shocking and offensive now, almost com- comforting on a certain level. Cause they're, they're just desensitized to it because that's part of their parents thing. I found it interesting how, my eldest child has found a way to rebel, which because you know, go figure every kid wants to rebel, but it's been almost in a complete rejection of, of the culture that I'm a part of, you know, and all the subversive thing of it, like, you know, not in the sense that he's like reactionary politically or anything like that, but just like, he's just like, I don't really care about music that much, you know, and I don't really you know, like the stuff that he finds interesting. And I find this with my younger kids that aren't as actively uh, resistant to my music as, as my eldest is, but like the YouTubers they like are, 
are fucking dorks. And I don't mean this as like <laughs> someone who's cool, but I mean like the guys they like, they're not cool at all by any no. metric. Like no. they don't look like, you know, they don't look like uh Darby Crash, but they also don't look like young thug. They don't look like anything cool. Like they're just like normal goofy dudes that are overreacting when they're playing video games <laughs> and then pulling really contrived stunts on each other that are very obviously pre-planned, but my kids love it and and it's it's amazing how because you can't be obscure and cool anymore because anyone can be obscure it's almost yeah. like you just got to be who you are and people are going to like you like that the cultural currency seems to be gone or disappearing and at least and they're also nice everybody's so fucking nice yes. you know that's something i wanted to bring up to you because you know like uh you know i read an interview i think with you john in goldmine maybe where they were talking about uh, how Sturgeon is so unlikable throughout the book. Like at times, like he's almost like an anti-hero where you try and like him, but he's almost resistant to it. And I feel like that was the era that we were part of, like where the cool people were the vice people making fun of people in the do's and don'ts section yeah. for looking shitty and like yeah. referencing Gigi Allen and like nasty shit and being like mean and kind of like, this is mine, not yours. Yeah. gatekeeper all this sort of stuff that's gone it's better to be nice than to be good now like and i love that i yeah. fucking love that you know yeah, yeah. That, that 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 judgment you know and and it, you know it, it seems to you know it's just fucking gone i mean yeah. you know my kid and his friends you know they're just they're not fucking hateful at all <laughs> it's you know so I don't know what that means, but it's, it, you know, and I've noticed that, you know, working at venues too and seeing like, you know, newer bands come through and, and you know, you know, largely popular newer bands come through and, and, you know, looking at the crowd and it's like, what are these people about? I can't even tell what they're about, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, 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 but that's, maybe that's it, you know, maybe it's just like, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, then you don't have to look the part, you know, maybe it's about being like, you know, a nice person and good to your fellow man, you know, and, and accepting and, and, uh, um, you know, so I don't, I don't know if any of us played a part in that, but you know, if, if we did, then that's like fucking awesome. You know, well, look at uh comedy, look at the way comedy's changed where, you know, it used to be like nasty and it used to right. be like edgy was funny. Now yeah. it's like shit's Creek where, you know it's not funny in the same sort of way like you don't laugh at it in the same way you'd laugh at always sunny in philadelphia but uh, it's 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 nice or ted was the ted lasso ted, yeah um, I, I say ted lasso i don't know if it's lasso ted lasso that, i think that's it that's it. i was trying to put my french my french school on on there a little bit with the uh, mm. other pronunciation but yeah like that show too like i don't think i laughed out loud once throughout the entire time watching i smiled the whole time and chuckled you know, but it, it wasn't like the same sort of, you know, oh, wow, that's that's funny. Like, oh, man, like that, that that's someone getting hurt. <laughs> let, let, let me play devil's advocate here, Damien. And honestly, I think I actually agree with my devil's advocate position, at least to an extent. Everyone's nice or nice. I'm holding up my fingers as in quotation mm -hmm. marks, you know. But if everyone's comforted and if no one's challenged, does that does that limit art? I mean, if if, if we if I look at a lot of my fa favorite art, it is it doesn't make you feel good sometimes. It does scare you sometimes. It does put you in a place of discomfort. And I think I mean I guess one of the ideas behind art is to make a point or make you think for yourself. So if you're not being challenged or scared, 
and you're only being comforted and confirmed, maybe that's not great art. I don't, I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, but maybe the role of art has changed, you know, like that's what I was thinking about mm. the other day is like, at one point the, the role of art, like, you know, like looking at like shoot the kids at school, you know, like, uh, you know, like, or, or like something like visceral like that, you know, like that was at one point being like, no, this is fucked up. Look at this. You need to look at this. I, we don't need to draw attention to things. I think in the same way, like attention is drawn to things, not necessarily through art anymore. And like, you know, obviously Dave Kennedy's with holiday in Cambodia, you know, and things like that. I'm just, you know, and I, I wrestle with this all the time. You know, this is something that I constantly think about, like the approach to writing lyrics now where I'm like, you know, writing political songs and writing about specific issues. Am I, you know, because the way music is monetized now, I'm, I'm expecting someone to pay me a little bit of money every time they think about this issue like i'm really monetizing someone's pain for my gain with this song and at one point i think it, i don't know i just i question this, and this isn't me saying i got I, like i really do wrestle with this all the time now like it has the function of art change and and you know it's interesting to kind of like think about that in terms of punk because punk so much of punk was like shock you know you need to see this you need to be woken up from this kind of thing where you know, I, I wonder what like punk going forward is going to look like. Well, I mean, people are still suffering. There's no doubt about that. You know, definitely. But right, and and uh, I mean, <clears throat> that's kind of the human condition. Yeah. You know, so even if it's all phony, if all of this nice stuff is is fucking complete bullshit, I'm still on board with it. You know, <laughs> I'm still okay with it. At least yeah, for like now we'll look at like turnstile you know like and like the positivity of their shows and what they're trying to do and like you're into that's just like one band that's going now but just like how that compares to like so many of the other bands that were popular in hardcore at different times you know and once again these are bands that i fucking love so i'm not yeah. you know trying to sure. take them down i like i love turnstile too you know yeah. like I'm, I'm more just fascinated by the journey art and and specifically this type of music is taking in this era that we're in right now because like you know hardcore prior to this like the hardcore guy like as you talked about john like that was that went along with like the hardcore band where it was like you were meant to be hard and it wasn't like you weren't re meant necessarily meant to be nice you know i think i saw dropkick murphy's the first time i saw him al said on stage you know i don't know why you guys are all smiling at me like that i'm not this nice or i'm not that nice <laughs> and just this kind of like antagonism that was so part of what punk was and what hardcore was seems to have heckling kind of been yeah the heckling is gone right yeah. too yeah. you know but i mean when you think about it it's all the perfect setup for something compelling for something really compelling to come along you know it's definitely something really well like you look at like i was watching footage of section hate playing uh that la show that they played under the freeway and it was like, this is like what my parents told me punk was like when they were like, stay away from it. It's scary, you know, and this is what all these movies that made punk really scary made it out to look like. Like, it's kind of like, I don't know. I think there's there's uh, as much as there's a, a shift towards positivity. I think also it's just like a shift towards like punk and hardcore in general. Like, look at the top albums, like the week that Turnstile record dropped is like Turnstile, The Bronx and chubby in the gang it's like three records that all have direct connections to to like punk you know i mean maybe that's the next shocking thing that you can do is just be fucking nice yeah 
Well, I think there, I think there are bands that are doing that. Like you're saying, or, you know? or start World War Three. You know, maybe yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> nicely uh, start World War Three. Uh, well, guys, this has been awesome. And John, it's been so good to finally get to talk to you. I knew this would be fun getting to do this with you. And Brad, as you know, you're always welcome on this show. And once again, guys, congratulations on this book. Congratulations on this book. I'll put it over in the intro uh, more. But yeah, it was a thrill to get asked to write something for the intro because it is definitely one of the great books to come out about. One of the most fascinating bands in this thing. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for having us here. You know, one of these days, I want to see you in your own hot seat, man. We got to talk to you, right? Has anybody done that yet? Have you had that? Uh, Jonah did a Jonah and I did a, a turned out a punk with me. I think it's episode one hundred. Oh, okay, uh, but but we're both like it's after a show, and we're yeah. both dead tired, and it's the end of a tour. So the last thing Jonah wants to do is yeah. find out more information about me as we've shared a room for the past. Right two weeks so it's definitely right. it's really i don't think either are of our favorite interviews that we've done <laughs> so uh but no i've definitely found a way to avoid it my brother did an episode one time that i think gave away all my secrets but mercifully he's decided that he doesn't want it to come out for himself so no one's uh, got to hear it yeah <laughs> uh, well i can't wait can't wait for that well when you guys you guys need a future book subject turned out a punk the oral history. <laughs>